know where to start. So if you guys have any um, recommendations or areas of interest you'd like to dive into, feel free to just drop those in the chat. And I'm going to start today by, well, that's a really cool one. I'm going to end with that one. Um, let's see. Okay. Aha, this is a great way to start. So, social media algorithms exploit how humans learn from their peers. Believe that shit or not. This is a long article, but we're going to check it out and read it. There's a link to science. There's a link right here. Boom. I have not seen nuclear now. I think that was recommended to me yesterday, too. I'll have to check that shit out. But uh, it says algorithm mediated social learning in online social networks. William J. Brady, hey, represent the Brady Bunch up in here. Okay, this looks like the whole article. Wow, there's a lot. There's a lot here. There's a lot here. Okay, so this comes from Cell Press, August 3rd, 2023. In prehistoric societies, humans tended to learn from members of our in-group or from more prestigious individuals as this information was more likely to be reliable and result in group success. However, with the advent of diverse and complex modern communities, and especially in social media, these biases become less effective. For example, a person we are connected to online might not necessarily be trustworthy, and people can easily feign prestige on social media. In a view published in the journal Trends, Cognitive Science on August 3rd, a group of social scientists describe how the functions of social media algorithms are misaligned with social human instincts meant to foster cooperation which can lead to large-scale polarization and misinformation. You don't say. You don't fucking say. Uh, this, is, this, this article might very well explain why Colin has gone to shit. <laughs> I find that kind of interesting and funny. Ooh, excuse me while I... Uh, get some heat shock therapy for my fucking back, which is so fucked up right now. Oh, oh my God. Jesus. Really need to fix my back. Uh, in the meantime, I'm grabbing, grabbing a smoke. If I can find my shirt, I guess. Might be in there. Oh, my back hurts. Like, dude. Not lying. Okay. 
if I can edit this out of the show. By golly, I can't find my smokes. Which might not be a bad thing. I don't need to smoke those things anyway. But I found them. Okay. Let's fucking do this. Okay, so this is really interesting to me. And I hope you guys get a kick out of this too. So, ah, okay, so let me get my drink and stuff ready. Okay, so a person we're connected to online might not necessarily be trustworthy, and people can easily feign prestige on social media. So in a a review published in the journal Trends in Cognitive Science on August 3rd, a group of social scientists describe how the functions of social media algorithms are misaligned with human social instincts meant to foster cooperation, which can lead to large-scale polarization and misinformation. So there's a introduction i'm gonna send the invite out oh hello lance i'm sure you have something pertinent and germane to add to the conversation before we start what's up um i'm just curious as to why you're obsessed with my underwear now if you want to give me a p.o box to protect your identity i can send a dirty pair for you to sniff if you want but you seem to be completely obsessed with my undies I don't think anyone's obsessed with you at all, Lance. Um, you always talk and, about uh, the reason uh, pants, I bring up your pants, pants so often is because I, I think you need to change them is the reason I bring up your pants so often is because I think they're full of shit, just like the rest of you. And so uh, I think you would do good to change your pants. So that's uh, that's why I brought that up. I can understand how you, somebody like you might easily get that confused with a uh, invitation for some kind of weird sex thing but yeah that's not what we're doing here uh just reading some science articles uh let's see okay yeah interesting we'll get into that nuclear situation uh oh lied to about nuclear interesting like nuclear power nuclear weapons interesting i will totally get into that uh interesting but uh this article should be absolutely pertinent uh, especially after what we just heard, <laughs> I think as a matter of fact, I think Lance is the perfect introduction to this article. So several back to the article, uh, several user surveys now, both on Twitter and Facebook suggest most users are exhausted by the political content. They see a lot of users are unhappy and there's not a lot of reputational components that Twitter or Facebook must face when it comes to elections and the spread of misinformation. Uh, That was William Brady, a social psychologist in the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern. Fellow Brady of the bunch. We wanted to put out a systematic review that's trying to help understand how human psychology and algorithms interact in ways that can have these consequences. Ah, I forgot to send out the invite. That's the whole reason I came back. Uh, Invite. Um... Let's try to be a little more inclusional, Warpigs, and 
direct that energy at the entire cult of Yahweh, he would be more productive. <laughs> but, uh, hey, man, I, I'm just glad that anyone's attacking any cult um, or any kind of pseudo-legitimate cult. Okay, so. They wanted to put out a systematic review that's trying to help understand how human psychology and algorithms interact in ways that can have these consequences. One of the things that this review brings to the table is a social learning perspective. As social psychologists, we're constantly studying how we can learn from others. This framework is fundamentally important if we want to understand how algorithms influence our social interactions. Humans are biased to learn from others in a way that typically promotes cooperation and collective problem solving, which is why they tend to learn more from individuals they perceive as part of their group. Interesting. I, t I, I mean, you know what? I guess I do tend to learn from individuals that are part of my group. It's a good point they make there. I never really thought about that, but yeah. Um, I was about to push back on that, but I, I take it right, right back. Um, so they, uh, they tend to learn more from individuals they perceive as part of their in-group and those they perceive to be prestigious. In addition, when learning biases were first evolving, morally and emotionally charged information was important to prioritize as this information would be more likely to be relevant to enforcing group norms and ensuring collective survival. In contrast, algorithms are usually selecting information that boosts user engagement in order to increase advertising revenue. This means algorithms amplify the very information humans are biased to learn from, and they can oversaturate social media feeds with what the researchers call prestigious in-group moral and emotional information. Regardless of the, so this is called prime information, prestigious in-group moral and emotional information, prime information. Regardless of the content's accuracy or represent, uh, representativeness of a group's opinions, as a result, extreme political content and controversial topics are more likely to be amplified. And if users are not exposed to outside opinions, they might find themselves with a false understanding of the majority opinion of different groups. It's not the al it's not that the algorithm is designed to disrupt cooperation. It's just that its goals are different. And in practice, when you put those functions together, you end up with some of these potentially negative effects. To address this problem, the research group first pro processes that uh, first proposes that social media users need to be more aware of how algorithms work and why certain content so shows up on their feed. Social media companies don't typically disclose the full details of how their algorithms select for content, but one start might be offering explainers for why a user is being shown a particular post. For example, is it because the user's friends are engaging with the content or because the content is generally popular? Outside of social media companies, the research team is developing their own interventions to teach people how to be more conscious consumers of social media. In addition, the researchers propose that social media companies could take steps to change their algorithms so they're more effective at fostering community instead of solely favoring prime information. Algorithms could set a limit on how much prime information they amplify and prioritize, presenting users with a diverse set of content.
these changes could continue to amplify engaging information while preventing more polarizing or politically extreme content from becoming overrepresented in feeds. Hmm. I kind of smell... I smell a psyop, but I don't know yet. As researchers, we understand the tension that companies face when it comes to making these changes in their bottom line. That's why we actually think these changes could technically still maintain engagement while also disallowing over representation of prime information. User experience might actually improve by doing some of this. Hmm. See, but I think some of that prime information is what uh, I like to refer to as open debate and uh, democracy of voices, which is the backbone and fuel of democracy. And so, yeah, it might make you uncomfortable. It might might stress you out a little bit that you got in an argument with someone online. But believe it or not, it makes us all better people. So I think that um, rather than nerfing the ar- the algorithms so that we don't get in as many arguments, I think that uh, we should just get more comfortable disagreeing with each other and having conversations about it. Speaking of disagreeing with each other and having conversations about it, Looks like Lance is uh, (laughs) going off in the comments. Okay, Lance, good luck. I think you should probably change your pants, Lance. Uh, I'm going to go to the next article. Interesting. Oh, interesting. Half of the population is set to have a mental health disorder by 75. Congratulations, guys. Some of y'all are already there. Um, This is an interesting one. New study links brain waves directly to memory. Okay, so University of Arizona. Dear God. Cigarettes are nasty. Disgusting. I'm going to smoke a bowl before this one. So just bear with me.
Okay, sorry about that. My dog had to eat some raw cabbage. Let's get back into the science. See what's up. New study links brain waves directly to memory. From the University of Arizona, simply remembering events can trigger brain rhythms, even more so when people are experiencing the actual event. What? Even more so than when people are experiencing the actual event. <clears throat> the findings could lay foundations for cognitive impairment therapy and help improve memory. Neurons produce rhythmic patterns of electrical activity in the brain. One of the unsettled questions in the field of neuroscience is what primarily drives these rhythmic signals called oscillations. University of Arizona researchers have found that simply remembering events can trigger them, even more so than when people are experiencing the actual event. The researchers whose findings are published in the journal Neuron specifically focused on what are known as theta oscillations, which emerge in the brain's hippocampus region during activities like exploration, navigation, and sleep. <clears throat> Interesting. The hippocampus plays a crucial role in the brain's ability to remember the past. Prior to this study, it was believed that the external environment played a more important role in driving theta oscillations. Uh, but Ekstrom and his collaborators found that memory generated in the brain is the main driver of theta activity. Surprisingly, we found that theta oscillations in humans are more prevalent when someone is just remembering things compared to experiencing events directly. Interesting. The results of the study could have implications for treating patients with brain damage and cognitive impairments, including patients who've experienced seizures, seizures, <coughs> uh, stroke, and Parkinson's disease. Ekstrom said memory could be used to create some uh, stimulations from within the brain and drive theta oscillations, which could potentially lead to improvements in memory over time. That'd be nice. Uh, <clears throat> you Arizona researchers collaborated on the study with researchers from University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, including neurosurgeon Dr. Brad Lega and research technician Jennifer Kriegel. The researchers recruited 13 patients who were being monitored at the center in preparation for epilepsy surgery. As part of the monitoring, electrodes were implanted in the patient's brains for detecting occasional seizures. The researchers recorded the theta oscillations in the hippocampus of the brain. The patients participated in a virtual reality experiment in which they were given a joystick to navigate to shops in a virtual city in a computer. When they arrived at the correct destination, the virtual reality experiment was paused. Researchers asked the participants to imagine the location at which they started their navigation and instructed them to mentally navigate the route they just passed through. The researchers then compared the oscillations during the initial navigation to participants' subsequent recollection of the route. During the actual navigation process, using the joystick, the oscillations were less frequent and shorter in duration compared to oscillations that occurred <clears throat> when participants were just imagining the route. So the researchers conclude that memory is a strong driver of theta oscillation in humans. One way to compensate for impaired cognitive function is by using cognitive training and rehabilitation. Basically, if you take a patient who has memory impairments, you can try to teach them to be better at memory. 
in the future, he's planning to conduct this research in freely walking patients as opposed to patients in beds and find how navigating, freely navigating compares to memory in regard to brain oscillations. So being able to directly compare the oscillations that were present during the original experience and during a later retrieval of that is a huge step forward in the field of terms of designing new experiments and understanding the neural basis of memory, which is a total mystery. Interesting article though. Hello, Peter. I got rid of Lance already. <laughs> that was easy. Just reading some science now. Lots of really interesting stuff coming out today. So we have some cool articles to go over. Fortunately, it, it looks like half the population is set to have a mental health disorder by 75, Peter. <clears throat> that, that information might not surprise you. I, I might even lower that number. Um... <clears throat> So, ah, here we go. Nuclear spins impact on biological processes has been uncovered. Super interesting. But before I get to that one, I'm going to read one more article <clears throat> about energy storing supercapacitor from cement, water, and black carbon. This is from MIT, July 31st, 2023. Engineers, <laughs> engineers, <laughs> uh, engineers, as we also call them. Sorry, I gotta, I gotta hit this pipe one more time before I start reading again. Did I drop that? Yeah, I think I did drop that link. To the last article. Okay, so without further ado, this is the article about. Energy storing supercapacitor from cement, water, and black carbon. I'm very excited about this. Uh, engineers have created a supercapacitor made of ancient abundant materials that can store large amounts of energy made of just cement, water, and carbon black, which resembles powdered charcoal. The device could form the basis for inexpensive systems that store intermittently renewable energy, such as solar wind, solar or wind energy. <clears throat> Two of humanity's most ubiquitous historical materials, cement and carbon black, which resembles very fine charcoal, may form the basis for a novel low-cost energy storage system, according to a new study. The technology could facilitate the use of renewable energy resources such as solar, wind, and tidal power by allowing energy networks to remain stable despite fluctuations in renewable energy supply. The two, new mater uh, the two materials the researchers found can be combined with water to make a supercapacitor, an alternative to batteries that could provide storage of electrical energy. As an example, the MIT researchers who developed the system say their supercapacitor could eventually be incorporated into the concrete foundation of a house where it could store full day's worth of energy while adding little or no to the cost of the foundation and still providing the needed structural strength. The researchers also envision a concrete roadway that could provide contactless recharging for electric, car electric cars as they travel over that road. The simple but innovative technology is described in a forthcoming paper in the journal PNAS in a paper by MIT professionals, uh, professors Franz Josef Ulm, Admir Masik, and Yang Shaohorn, and four others at MIT and at the WIS Institute. 
Capacitors are, in principle, very simple devices consisting of two electrically conductive plates immersed in an electrolyte and separated by a membrane. When a voltage is applied across the capacitor, positively charged ions from the electrolyte accumulate on the negatively charged plate, while the positively charged plate accumulates negatively charged ions. Since the membrane in between the plates blocks charged ions from migrating across, the separation of charges creates an electric field between the plates, and the capacitor becomes charged. The two plates can maintain this pair of charges for a long time and then deliver them very quickly when needed. Supercapacitors are simply capacitors that can store exceptionally large charges. The amount of power a capacitor can store depends on the total surface area and of its conductive plates. The key to the new supercapacitors developed by this team comes from a method of producing cement-based material with an extremely high internal surface area due to a dense interconnected network of conductive material within its bulk volume. The researchers achieved this by introducing carbon black, which is highly conductive, into a concrete mixture along with cement powder and water, letting it cure. <clears throat> the water naturally forms a branching network of openings within the structure as it reacts with cement, and the carbon migrates into these spaces to make wire-like structures within the hardened cement. These structures have a fractal-like structure with larger branches sprouting smaller branches and those sprouting even smaller brackets and so on, ending up with an extremely large surface area within the confines of a relatively small volume. The material is then soaked in standard electrolyte materials such as potassium chloride, a kind of salt which provides the charged particles that accumulate on the carbon structures. Two electrodes made of this material separated by a thin space or an insulating layer form a very powerful supercapacitor, the researchers found. The two plates of the capacitor function. <clears throat> I see. Two electrodes made of this material. Okay, separated by a thin space or an insulating layer form a very powerful supercapacitor. Holy shit. Okay. Awesome. Fucking awesome. This is like the grape thing in a microwave. Uh, the two plates <clears throat> of the capacitor function just like the two poles of a rechargeable battery of equivalent voltage. When connected to a source of electricity, as with a battery, energy gets stored in the plates, and then when connected to a load, the electrical current flows back out to provide power. The material is fascinating because you have the most used human-made material in the world, cement, that's combined with carbon black, that is well known in historical material. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written with it. You have these at least two millennia old materials that when you combine them in a specific manner, you come up with a conductive nano composite that is, and that's when things get really interesting. As the mixture sets and cures, the water systematically consumed through the cement hydration reactions, and this hydration fundamentally affects nanoparticles of carbon because they're hydrophobic. As the mixture evolves, the carbon black is self-assembling into a connected conductive wire. The process is easily reproducible with materials that are inexpensive and readily available anywhere in the world, and the amount of carbon needed is very small, as little as 3% by volume of the mix to achieve a percolated carbon network. Mass success. <clears throat> 
Supercapacitors made of this material have great potential to aid in the world's transition to renewable energy. The principal sources of emissions, free energy, wind, solar, and tidal power all produce their output at variable times that often do not correspond to the peaks in electricity usage. So ways of storing that power are essential. There's a huge need for big energy storage. And existing batteries are too expensive and mostly rely on materials like lithium, whose supply is limited. So cheaper alternatives are badly needed. This is where our technology is extremely promising because cement's ubiquitous. The team calculated that a block of nanocarbon black developed. This is amazing. Uh, Nanocarbon black doped concrete (laughs) is what they call it. Uh, (coughs) Pardon me. I'm cleansing my lungs right now with cigarettes. <laughs> uh, let's see. But they call this stuff nanocarbon black doped concrete that is 45 cubic centimeters or yards in size, equivalent to a cube about 3.5 meters across, would have enough energy capacity to store about 10 kilowatt hours of energy, which is considered the average daily electricity usage for a household. Since the concrete would retain its strength, a house with a foundation made of this material could store a day's worth of energy produced by solar panels or windmills and allow it to be used whenever it's needed. And supercapacitors can be charged and discharged much more rapidly than batteries. And I think it's like uh, the lifetime is a lot longer as well. So, I mean, I think it's essentially the lifetime of the fucking thing. After a series of tests used to determine the most effective ratios of cement, carbon, black, and water, the team demonstrated the process by making small supercapacitors about the size of some button cell batteries. Button cell batteries, wow, about one centimeter across and one millimeter thick that could each be charged to one volt, comparable to a one volt battery. They they then connected three of these to demonstrate their ability to light up a three-volt light-emitting diode. Having provided the principle, they now plan to build a series of larger versions, starting with ones about the size of a typical 12-volt car battery, then working up to a 45-cubic-meter version to demonstrate its ability to store house worth of power. <clears throat> there is a trade-off between the storage capacity of the material and its structural strength. By adding more carbon black, the resulting supercapacitor can store more energy, but the concrete is slightly weaker. This could be useful for applications where the concrete is not playing a structural role or where the full strength potential of the concrete is not required. For applications such as foundation or structural elements of the base of a wind turbine, the sweet spot is around 10% carbon black in the mix. Another potential application for carbon cement supercapacitors is for building concrete uh, roadways that could store energy produced by solar panels alongside the road and then deliver that energy to electric vehicles traveling along the road using the same kind of technology used for wirelessly rechargeable phones. A related type of car recharging system is already being developed by companies in Germany and the Netherlands, but using standard batteries for storage. Initial uses of the technology might be for isolated homes or buildings or shelters far from grid power, which could be powered by solar panels attached to the cement supercapacitors, the researchers say. 
Ohm says the system is very scalable and the energy storage capacity is a direct function of the volume of the electrodes. You can go from one millimeter thick electrodes to a meter thick electrode. And by doing so, basically, you can scale the energy storage capacity from lighting an LED for a few seconds to powering a whole house. Depending on the properties desired for a given application, the system could be tuned by adjusting the mixture. For a vehicle charging road, very fast charging and discharging rates would be needed. While for powering a home, you have the whole day to charge it up, so slower charging material could be used. So it's really a multifunctional material. Besides its ability to store energy in the form of supercapacitors, the same kind of concrete mixture can be used as a heating system by simply applying electricity to the carbon-laced concrete. Ohm sees this as a new way of looking toward the future of concrete as part of the energy transition. The research team also included postdocs Nicholas Chanute and Damien uh, Stefanuk at MIT's Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering, James Weaver at the Wyss Institute for Biology. Okay, I'm going to drop a link. <laughs> We're at the end of this article. This is fucking fascinating and i might be starting a new company based on this technology this is fucking great and if we can i'm just gonna shut my mouth <laughs> i don't need hakeem stealing any more of my ideas today <laughs> let's see here uh lobster time you lucky dog lance uh <clears throat> so here we have a link to the article i just read from there we go. Link to that information for anyone interested. Enjoy that lobster, uh, Peter. And I'm going to read the last, um, very last article here. Should be interesting. Something I've long wanted to learn about. Okay, pardon my... <coughs> mm. Mucus. <clears throat> okay, from August 1st, 2023, from the Hebrew, the, the Hebrew University, oh God, fucking no, no war is going to love this one. From the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, my Jewish friends, I love my Jewish friends, by the way, my fucking Jewish people are fucking awesome. As far as the cult of Yahweh goes, like, I'm just going to say it, the Jewish people are obviously the fucking coolest sect of the cult of Yahweh. It's not much of a fucking competition, guys. Y'all need to wake the fuck up. Uh, but here we have <clears throat> the Hebrew University of Jerusalem has a paper. Uh, titled Nuclear Spin's Impact on Biological Processes Uncovered. And according to this, researchers have discovered that nuclear spin influences biological processes, challenging long-held beliefs. They found that certain isotopes behave differently in chiral environments affecting oxygen dynamics and transport. This breakthrough could advance biotechnology, quantum biology, and MMR technology with potential applications in isotope separation and medical imaging. This is so awesome. The chiral spin of a molecule is uh, pretty interesting. It has to do with the like direction that the nucleus is spinning. 
And you can have these, like, a left-hand spin tends to be, like, a natural, more biological one, whereas when we make synthetic materials, they tend to have, like, a right-hand spin. And it's been theorized in the past, there's been hypothesized in the past that, um, that there really is a difference between left-handed molecules and right-handed molecules. And so now, at least especially when it comes to biology and, and what you're putting in your body, So we're about to open up this massive can of worms. So getting into the article here, a research team led by Professor Yossi uh, Palatil, uh, Palatil, yeah, Yossi Palatil at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem with groups from HUJI Wiseman and IST Austria New study reveals the influence of nuclear spin on biological processes. This discovery challenges long-held assumptions and opens up exciting possibilities for advancements in biotechnology and quantum biology. Scientists have long believed that nuclear spin had no impact on biological processes. However, vindicated again, the hippies were right. The recent research has shown that certain isotopes behave differently due to their nuclear spin. The team focused on stable oxygen isotopes 160, 170, 180, and found that nuclear spin significantly affects oxygen dynamics in chiral environments, particularly in its transport. The findings published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS, have potential implications for controlled isotope separation and could revolutionize nuclear magnetic resonance technology. Professor Yossi Paltiel and the lead researcher expressed excitement about the significance of these findings. He said, our research demonstrates that nuclear spin plays a crucial role in biological processes, suggesting that its manipulation could lead to groundbreaking applications in biotechnology and quantum biology. This could potentially revolutionize isotopic fractionation processes and unlock new possibilities in fields as NMR. Isotopic fractionation. I'm going to have to look that one up. Fractionation. Isotopic fractionation. What the fuck is that? Right. Copy. Okay. So I'll get a uh, definition for that word later. Uh, The story in detail. Researchers have been studying the strange behavior of tiny particles and living things funding some places where quantum effects change biological processes. For example, studying bird navigation, quantum effects may help some birds find their way in long journeys. Uh, In plants, plants, effectively using sunlight for energy is affected by quantum effects. The connection between the tiny world of particles and living beings likely goes back billions of years when life began and molecules with a special shape called chiral, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a special shape called chirality appeared. Chirality is important because only molecules with the right shape can do this, can do the jobs they need to do in living things. The link between chirality quantum mechanics was found in spin, which is like a tiny magnetic property. 
chiral molecules can interact differently with particles based on their spin, creating something called chiral induced spin selectivity or cis. <laughs> Scientists have found that spin affects tiny particles like electrons and living processes involving chiral molecules. They wanted to see if spin also affects larger particles like ions and molecules, which supply the base for biological transport. So they want to see spin also affects larger particles like ions and molecules. Okay. So they did experiments with water particles that have different spins. What? The results showed that spin influences how water behaves in cells entering at different speeds and reacting in a unique way when chiral molecules are involved. Get the fuck out. Study highlights the importance of spin in the processes of life. Understanding and controlling spin could have a big impact on how living things work. It might also help improve medical imaging and create new ways to treat illnesses. The research was a collaborative effort among scientists from various institutions, including the Institute of Earth Sciences and Life Sciences in Hebrew and the Wiseman Institute, with a study led by Department of Applied Physics at Hebrew University. Holy fucking shit. This is amazing to me. I think the implications are a little more than what we're seeing right here, right now. Um, but nuclear spin effects in biological processes. I'm going to have to read a lot more into this, hopefully at some point in the future. And I'm going to have some people much smarter than me um, look into this as well. I'm going to hopefully talk to them. I'm going to take this information. And I'm going to relay this to one of my favorite water sommeliers, this German guy. Very cool guy. Oh, dear God. The ladybug's back. So let's, uh, Lance, I tell you what, Lance, uh, this room is over. And if you'd like to talk about something, I'm going to open a whole new room right now. And we can talk about whatever you want, but here is a link to the article in question that I just read, which was fascinating in my opinion. Um, so turns out that nuclear spin and chiral spin and molecules actually matters even in water guys. So I have a lot of, uh, rabbit hole diving to do here. And so I'm going to try to figure out the difference between left-handed water and right-handed water now. So wish me luck. And I'm going to come back and do a report on that once I get an answer to that question. So hope you guys learned something. I know I did. found this one super interesting. Probably one of the cooler episodes I've ever done. And <laughs> we'll pick that topic up uh, in the next room, Lance. I'll see you on the other side. You guys